0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Ryan Meyer. So I'm a, a colleague of Tim's. Uh, we work together there at the seminary. Um, I've learned quite a bit from him, especially about First Peter, because that is his, his expertise. So you're getting, you're getting the sub tonight. You're not getting the, the expert on First Peter. But we do have his notes, and uh, we have our, our scriptures that we can look at together. I'm going to open in a word of prayer and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for your word. um, As this passage that we'll look at tonight reminds us, the things that we and others around the world have experienced are the things that prophets long to see. Desperately wanted to know the timing and the circumstances. Uh, We've been given such a privilege to know about jesus in a more clear way to experience the new birth and all of its blessings i pray that tonight we would not take that for granted but that we would uh, humble ourselves in front of your word listening to it carefully and uh, using it for its purpose which is to make us more like christ and we ask for his help in doing this and in his name amen all right. So, my understanding is that you've already looked at the introduction to the book and you've looked at the first two verses. All right. So, first verse, you know, is Peter, he was an apostle of Christ, Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians who are scattered all through Asia Minor, a bunch of different provinces. They're living as exiles. They're sojourners. The way that I would put it, is that they're sharing in Israel's exile. Israel has lost their home and is scattered throughout the world. And Israel is just really a sample of what's happened to all of us. We all originally had a place, the Garden of Eden, where we were supposed to live in fellowship with God. And Adam and Eve were exiled from that place. And Israel was gathered to make a new place. And now because of her sin, she's been scattered. Even the very temporary benefit that they had at the time of Jesus was lost shortly after Peter writes this letter. And now all of us are sharing in Israel's exile because of our loyalty and love for Israel's king. We're waiting for a place. We live in a world that really isn't our home. We don't always feel comfortable here. At least we shouldn't, right? And so it reminds me of Jesus' parable of the fact that we're like good seed that's been scattered and grows but we're in the middle of a wheat field there's other people around us who are also growing up alongside us and we're waiting for that day when Jesus returns and we're all separated and we're brought back to a place right that's how Scripture is going to end where we're back in the garden so to speak we've come back to a place where we'll see Jesus we'll see our father God, and will dwell with Him forever as His people. But even though we're scattered and we're aliens, we're chosen, right? We're God's chosen people. Verse 2, He emphasizes the Trinity's work in in saving us. Our salvation, our, our election, was based on the decision of the Father. It was put into practice, or it was actually applied by the work of the Spirit. It was the Spirit who sanctified us and set us apart as a new people. And actually, we know it was made possible, right, because of what Jesus accomplished. The purpose was for us to be obedient, and we were sprinkled with Jesus' blood. So, verse 2 always kind of reminds me of the beginning of the book of Ephesians, right? We see the same emphasis on the work of the Trinity. It was the Father who planned our salvation. It was the Son who accomplished our salvation, and it's the Spirit who applies that salvation. He takes the benefits that Jesus earned, and he applies them to us in person. So then in verse 3, Paul continues this doxology. Blessed then be, or praise. Another way to translate blessed is praise. It's hard for us to think, well, how can you bless or give a blessing to God? Because how can you add anything to God? What could He possibly need from us? So another way of thinking of it is you're not blessing Him or giving Him something, but you're, you're praising Him. You're acknowledging for who He is. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I believe that's where you left off last time, right? That the, the Father has caused us or He's given us a new birth. It's not something that we did ourselves, just as it wasn't anything that we did to ourselves when we were born the first time, right? It's something that somebody else caused to happen for us. Well, the same with the second birth or the new birth. It's something that God Himself causes us uh, to to have now as a present possession. And because of that, it's gonna lead to three great blessings or benefits of the new birth. So, Roman numeral three, the blessings of the new birth. Does that look close to where you guys were in your notes? That's where I was told to to pick up. So when when, uh, Peter is talking about the new birth, it's an analogy. So an analogy has a metaphorical element So it's not exactly like being given a new birth. But even though it's an analogy, and there's a little bit of a metaphor to it, it's still real. So an analogy can actually still describe something that's real. Why does he call it a new birth? Well, he probably gets that from Jesus. Remember Jesus' conversation in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he tells them that no one can enter the kingdom unless they're born again. A birth that comes... From heaven okay and as i said it suggests it's not something that can be affected for ourselves it's not something that we can take credit for and that makes sense because he thanks god for it right you don't thank something somebody for something that they didn't do if, if we could take credit for the new birth if it was kind of like a ticket that we got just because we prayed a prayer or walked an aisle if it was something that we could brag about then why would we go to God and thank Him for doing it, right? So it's actually something that's from God. Specifically, He thanks the Father, okay? Calling Him the Father, probably, as Tim says there in number one, to enhance the familial metaphor. Okay, so we're, we're children who have been given birth, and the one who gave us birth is, is the Father. It's also connected to election, So it's not like he's completely introduced a new topic in verse 3. Actually, one way of thinking about the new birth that he talks about in verse 3 is that he zeroed in on one aspect of what he was talking about in verse 2. In verse 2, the Father decided to save us. So it was his knowledge, his foreknowledge, it's his choice. And it was the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then he talks about the benefits of Jesus. But that sanctifying work of the Spirit, where the Spirit takes us and sets us apart, that's just another way of referring to the new birth. Okay? The sanctifying work of the Spirit is the new birth. It's what we sometimes call regeneration. It's, it's something supernatural that happens to us. I think as a Christian, it took me a, a really long time to, to grasp that. I had to have a lot of people teach that before it clicked. I think as a new Christian, I always just thought of new birth one of two ways. One was kind of that ticket idea, right? So I I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Maybe when I was little, I would have attached that to a prayer. And now I'm born again. I have this ticket that will get me into heaven. Or the second way it's used, and you probably hear this most often in the media, it just refers to a type of Christian who believes in conversion. So there's like mainline Christians and the big denominations and they just think of tri- Christian as something you're just born into, right? Or because you go to a certain church or because you were christened or you're baptized, so you're that kind of Christian. And then there's those of us who think you have to have a conversion experience and you're born-again Christians. And they'll actually have statistics about you know, what born-again Christians believe or how born-again Christians vote, right? It's just kind of a category for people who study society. But that's not really what Scripture describes. Scripture describes something supernatural. You actually are changed when you're given the new birth. The only reason that you can exercise repentance from your sins and faith in Jesus is because you've been given the new birth. It all happens in an instant. You don't see any steps But there's a logical connection where the new birth actually comes first. It's what causes you to have faith in Jesus and repent from your sins and toward God. So it's something that comes from God, and it's sourced in God's great mercy. Look at point three there. It's according to His great mercy. This reinforces the divine origin of the birth as well as the unearned, and unearnable nature of the benefits. Again, I think many of us, we never thought that way when we first came to Christ and when we were first learning Christian teaching. And even now, sometimes there's something inside of us that thinks that that just doesn't quite fit or make sense. But there's also, I think, something inside of us that tells us that is how it is. Because we know and we have this intuitive thing inside of us That wants to pray for the salvation of other people right we have a list of people that we pray for and we want god to save them well if he doesn't actually do something to save them then what are we praying for really right are we just praying that he'll make them smarter just praying that someday it'll click for them when it hasn't clicked before no what we're actually praying for if we're real specific about it and we don't have to use these words but if we're being specific, we're praying that God would give them life, that He would give them new birth, so that the things that t- to us look beautiful, that we would be willing to give up everything for, they would see the same thing. Right? That's what we're actually asking for. So there's three great benefits of this new birth. So in the original language, uh, Tim's got a footnote there. There's a there's a preposition that. Peter uses three times, and the preposition you, it indicates a purpose. So something happened, and in this case it's God given the new birth, so that this would happen. In English, sometimes it's translated two, or sometimes it's translated four. So I'm reading out of the NASB. So in the NASB, the first are two, and then the third's a four. So the first one is to a living hope through the resurrection, See that? The end of verse 3. And then the, the next one is at the beginning of verse 4. To obtain an inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled. And then the last one's kind of hidden because it's in the middle of a verse. But in verse 5, it's for a salvation ready to be revealed in, in the last time. Three, three, three times same preposition is used. That's where he's getting these three headings. So Tim's a good guy. He got this straight from the text he's not making up these three purposes so why did god give us the new birth well at the top of the next page number one it was so that he we could be provided with a living hope okay so he says who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope all right does that sound like what you have there in your passage you following along with me this living hope could be contrasted with what he'll say later about a dead hope so he says previously they lived an empty life they lived a vain life that's how all of us lived before we came to know Christ even if it was when we were little people that were little children that we were saved at we still had empty vain selfish lives futile lives lives that weren't going anywhere and because we were born into this world already spiritually dead, we inevitably were going to die physically. And if you die physically, still dead spiritually, then you're, de- you're dead eternally, right? Death is essentially separation. So you can think of it as three separations. That when Adam sinned, all of us as humans were cut off from our source of life. We were all cut off from our spiritual father so we're we're spiritually dead we come into this world walking around acting like we're alive and in a sense we are physically but we've already been cut off from our life source we're like the Christmas tree that hasn't had water for a while and eventually you're gonna see it eventually we will all physically die and if you physically die still spiritually dead then you're eternally dead That separation that you've had from God will now last forever. You won't be gathered back to that place where we'll be with God forever that Scripture ends with. So what's the solution to that? Well, you have to have life. That's the beauty of the new birth. The new birth, if you wanted to define it, is the impartation or the giving of spiritual life to people who are spiritually dead. Now, if you've been given spiritual life, Even though, unless the rapture happens, we all still will physically die. But as John said, or as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, right in front of Lazarus' tomb, even though you die, yet you will live, right? That now, because we've been given spiritual life, we will actually live forever. Death will not be the final story for you and I. Either Jesus will come for us in the rapture, which could happen at any moment, or someday our dead body, wherever it is in this world, will come back to life, be reunited with our immaterial portion, and it will live forever. It's a living hope. That's a good hope, isn't it? It's a living hope. That's what he's referring to here. That's the, one of the great benefits of the, the new life. Um, I think that for that whole point D, if you just wanted to summarize it, it's, it's eternal life. That's what he's talking about there. The second one is that the new birth provides an eternal inheritance. All right? I've got a little bit of a tickle in my throat, so every once in a while I'm going to stumble over words, so bear with me. So verse 4 says, "...to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you." So the language of inheritance, uh, number one there under E, highlights the familial nature of this relationship, okay? So he's kind of, he's continuing this family imagery. So we're we're spiritual children. We have a spiritual father who gave us uh, birth, and as his children, we will also get his inheritance, okay? I think it also picks up, again, language from the Old Testament. The people of Israel were a member of that place that they were promised. They were going to have a spot in that place, Daniel says, you know, he's told that when he's resurrected someday in the future, Daniel chapter 12, he'll be resurrected to his his place, his spot. Okay? So it's not just that we'll be in this new home all wandering around, but we'll actually have places there, a place assigned for us. Okay? I don't know what it'll look like, but it'll be good. And it'll be ours, and it'll be gracious. It will be something that we weren't we weren't earning. Peter describes this inheritance with three words, all right? So Tim was, uh, Tim did a cool thing there. He, he tried to capture this with three English words that start the same and kind of sound similar because what's going on in, in Greek is Peter's used three words that all start with the same letter and have the, the same ending. So it sounds cool when you say it in Greek because it's, it sounds very similar, three words in a row. It's just a nice way of describing something. It's pleasant to the ear. It's hard to do that, though, when, when you translate into another language. So I think he kind of coined a word. I don't know if unperishable is actually a word. I'm going to give him a hard time about that because I think it's supposed to be imperishable. But he, he, you don't know what he was trying to do. He was trying to get the uns together, okay? So he's got unperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Or maybe you could say undying for the first one, Okay. So the first one refers to the fact that it will not change. It will not die, okay? You have a, an inheritance that's kept for you in heaven that's not going anywhere. It's, it's safe. It's undefiled. It can never be marred by sin. How many things have you had in this life that you really cared about and valued, but somehow because of either your sin or someone else's sin, it was ruined, Right? So it doesn't seem as special now as it used to be, right? The problem is, is we can't latch on to things in this world, right? Because they will always disappoint us. And it's unfading. It's not going away. It won't cease to exist. Three, the three words, they kind of blend together the same idea. They remind me again of Jesus' teaching, right? He said, don't store up for yourself treasure here on earth because what happens on earth? Right? Rust happens vermin happens moths come in or thieves break in and steal right but instead lay up for yourself treasures in heaven because in heaven there is no moth or vermin or rust however you translate that and there's nobody that breaks in and steals your stuff so if the things that you value most are in heaven then you'll always have them nobody can take them away from you they're completely safe If you value things here on earth as as ultimate rather than as a tool to an end, then you'll always be disappointed by them. So one commentator captures Peter's three descriptions well. He says, The inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, and unimpaired by time. It'll never get old. It's kept in heaven for you. I think, again, this emphasizes the the exile theme that he started with you remember abraham what stephen says about him in his sermon in acts chapter 7 he says that our father abraham was a sojourner he never had a place he wandered around in canaan as a bedouin basically the ultimate example of that in abraham's life is that when his wife his precious wife sarah dies what's he have to do he has to go buy a cave in order to bury her because he has no property of his own. He was told to leave Ur and to go and that God would give him a place, but he dies not having the place, but still believing that he will someday have it. So look in your Bibles just over a few pages. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 11. This is what we and Abraham have in common. Lots of things that are different about us, right? But he lived 4,000 years ago. But he is very much like us in this way. So it was talking about Abraham and the other uh, patriarchs. And it says, These died in faith without receiving the promises that having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if deed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. So Abraham died believing that where he was right now was just temporary, and that he was going to come back to this place, and it was going to be his place. Right? and also that he would have a blessing then that would cover over the whole world. So it would have been foolish for Abraham to latch on to anything here in this world and consider it of ultimate value. It would have been foolish for him to think of this as his permanent home. I heard one preacher one time preaching on that passage, and he said that for us or for Abraham, it'd be like if we moved into an airport right, and started making it into our home or into a train station and make it our home. There was a movie, I think, once about a guy who lived in an airport, and it's a funny movie because no one does that, right? That's the whole point of the movie. We, we understand that there's some places in this world that are just meant for passing through. There's nothing about them that are meant to be a temporary home. You and I as Christians should view the whole world that way, that it's just temporary, and God gives us tools, and we can use those tools for means, but we can never use them as ends. They can never be the ultimate thing that we love. I think that's what Peter is driving at with his exilic language, his sojourner language, and this language of a, an inheritance. All right, then the last one, and I'll, then I'll, I'll take a breath and see if you guys have questions. So verse 5, the bottom of that page, point F, says God is not only preserving the inheritance, he's preserving believers for the inheritance of that inheritance. Okay? So in other words, we're going to get there safely. And the reason why we can get there safely is because when the rest of this world experiences God's wrath that they justly deserved, we'll be saved from that wrath, right? And we we realize that is only because of the work of Christ, right? If Christ hadn't died for us and accomplished our salvation, he would have been the only one that would have been worthy of entering a new heaven and a new earth, a kingdom, right? He could have had a kingdom, but he would have had it alone. In order for him to have people there who will love him and spend that kingdom for eternity with him, he had to die for them. He had to save them. He had to rescue them from this coming wrath. So I think here he emphasizes that it's a a salvation. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he must be using salvation to refer to something in the future, because it's a salvation ready to be used, revealed in the last time. Sometimes uh, we use salvation to refer to our initial conversion. Like we might say, when were you saved? Or we might describe to someone when we were saved, right? That's a very appropriate way of using it, that There was a point in the time when we went from being children of wrath to being children of God, in Ephesians 2 sense, right? But actually in the New Testament, salvation is more often used to describe what happens to us in the future. That those of us who have already been saved, who have been given new birth, will someday be saved as in like the final judgment. When, When Christ returns and he pours out wrath upon this earth, and people are separated out eventually into a lake of fire, there will be people who are saved from that, who are rescued from that. That's the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So get that idea there, it's, it's ready, it's, it's imminent. It could happen at any time. Like Jonathan Edwards said in his famous sermon, it's like all of us are, are just little spiders hanging by a web over a fire. And we could fall in that fire at any time. We don't know when it could happen. But we know that if we've been given the new birth, that one of the great benefits that comes with that birth is that we won't have to fear God's wrath. We won't have to suffer God's wrath. That we'll actually be rescued. We're actually kept, it says, by the power of God through faith. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? So it's the power of God that protects us or keeps us, but he does it through our faith. So not only did the new birth give us faith in the first place, it was only because of God's act that you and I could have faith in the first place, but it's also God who sustains that faith and makes sure that we still have that faith. We have to have faith, We have to keep holding on to Christ. If we give up on Him, we have no other hope. So many times in the New Testament, it encourages us to keep trusting, keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, keep following after Christ. But at the same time, we also have the promise that those of us who have truly been born again will be kept in that position by God Himself. It will actually be the power of Almighty God that ensures that you and I will continue in our faith all the way to the end so that we will receive this salvation. That's why at the very end of the page, Dr. Miller says, the ultimate reason we endure is God. The means God uses is our faith, so it's a means, it's an instrument, but the agent, the, the force behind that instrument is actually God himself. We'll stop there. Any, any questions so far? Yes, ma'am. Um, what you're saying, then is that if we were saved, we are now being saved, and then we will be saved in the final judgment. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely true, yeah. I don't know if in this passage Peter is talking about the being saved, the middle part. That's not his focus at the, at the moment, but other places in the New Testament do talk about it in that, those terms. So there's an initial conversion that takes place, and that's where we're regenerated. And the immediate result of regeneration, the way we know it's happened, is because we repent and we trust in Jesus. So the New Testament never, when when it shows the gospel being preached, it never says to people, you just sit there and wait to be born again. It never does that. What's it always do? It always calls people to repent and trust in Jesus knowing that some people who hear that message will have the power of the Spirit to actually make it possible. And then those people are then in a life where they're being saved. So they're progressively being sanctified, is sometimes how we describe it. They're being made more like Jesus. And at the end, all of those who have been saved and were being saved will finally be saved. Now, the issue that comes up is that remember Jesus' parable, that same seed goes out, the same gospel message goes out, and there's some people who initially look like they were saved. They start growing, right? But then different things happen. Um, either they fall to trials and temptations, which Peter's going to get to here in a second, the, uh, the shallow soil, the rocky soil, Or they fall to the cares of this world. Like Demas, they decide that they actually like things in this world better than following Christ. And so those people, they don't continue in faith. They fall away. Well, it's not that they stopped being born again. What actually we realize afterwards is that they were never born again to begin with. They actually had a superficial attachment to Jesus that didn't persevere because it wasn't accompanied by the power of the new birth. that you know, To go back to verse 2, that middle thing never happened, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And if that didn't happen, that means that they weren't chosen by the Father, and that means that they don't receive the benefits of being sprinkled with Jesus' blood. But of course, we, know, we don't know that until much later, right? We don't know that. It's the, sad, the saddest thing that happens to us as Christians, right? Because we see it in our own families. Sometimes we see it in our own churches, right, that th- th- this just happens, that people do fall away, but we shouldn't be surprised by it, right, because Jesus told us it was going to happen. He had a whole parable about it. Any other questions? Spam. Yes, so being where it says we are kept through our faith, mm-hmm. it's really not our faith, but it's God's faith, right? No, it's, it's our faith. So it's our faith that God made possible. That's the way I would say it. Okay. It just sounds mm-hmm. like we're the ones doing it and not God. So it, so it counts on us. Mm. Well, it's, it's through faith. So that's your faith. So the way he protects us is through us remaining faithful. But it's him doing it in the way that makes sense with the rest of scripture what we know about what god does is that he actually is the one who's the agent behind it so another passage let's go over to jude this is another one that shows this interaction well little tiny book of jude So in verse, now you remember Jude, the whole point of the book is about false teachers and heretics. There's people that have secretly snuck into the church and they're not denying Christianity by their doctrine. They're denying Christianity by their lifestyle, which is is a problem right now, right? You got professing Christians saying that things that God says are wrong are not wrong. So they're not saying we deny the, the deity of Christ. They're not saying we deny substitutionary atonement. But they're saying X, Y, and Z that the Bible says is wrong is okay. So that's, that's kind of the problem that Jude is dealing with. So these types of people, then, we would say were never born again. In light of those kind of people, Jude says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So that would be a very parallel statement To what Peter says so keep yourself in the love of God while you're waiting for the mercy that Jesus will show you at his second coming right now that if that's all we had we think well this is this is really up to us right I just need to pull myself up by my bootstraps and keep myself in the love of God right but then look down at verse 24 the way he ends the letter he says now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling And to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever, amen. So it's very clear that ultimately, if you ask Jude, well, which is it? Are we we keeping ourselves, or is God keeping us? He'd say it's both, it's both, but there's one that's ultimate. There's one who's ultimately going to get the credit. It's, it's God who's making sure that we can keep ourselves. He's the one who's energizing our faith. He's the one that knows exactly what trials to let us have and what trials not to have us. Everything about our life is planned out by Him, and He's making sure that all of us will get successfully into that, that kingdom that He's promised for us. Do you have a follow-up question? or yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Isn't it sort of like you talked about, People that I punched my ticket, now I can do what I want, mm-hmm. and they feel like I'm eternally secure. Mm-hmm. It may not be the same word as persevering, you know, because we work together in our sanctification with the Holy Spirit. So it involves our faith. But to me, it's hard not to think of the works at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, then you address yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thought, I don't know, you could correct me if this isn't answering your question. So, I mean, one thought is that Paul makes it really clear in his letters that he does not see faith as a work, right? He sets them up as contrasts. So, faith is, is an empty hand receiving something. Faith is believing that what God says Jesus has accomplished is actually true, So I like to use the word trust sometimes because I think faith is kind of nebulous in our society. Faith means just taking a leap out in the dark, doing stuff without reason. But actually biblical faith is taking God at his word. He says it and we believe it. It's true. Um, But I think the other thing, and maybe this is where you're going at with it, is that that type of thinking, that now I'm saved by grace so I can live however I want to, that's been around as long as the gospel's been preached, right? Because Paul confronts it. Romans chapter 6, right? He, he clearly confronts it. That there's already people in his day that are saying, well, then this just means we can live however we want to. Or in Jude, it says that they've they've perverted the grace of God and used it as a license for immoral living. That's, that's Ryan's paraphrase. But that's basically what he says in Jude. So just because people have always been saying that, the solution isn't to go back and tinker with the gospel then and try to answer their objection. The, the, the solution is just to keep preaching the gospel and know that those of us who are truly born again, we don't think that way. We don't think of the grace that God has given us as an excuse for immorality. We actually hate our sins, and we want to be saved from them. And when we sin, it grieves us, and we want to repent of them. Um, I don't think a genuine Christian is the one who's taking the grace that God has given them and using it as a license or an excuse than to live in those sins that they said they wanted to be saved from. Okay, Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Any other questions? That's a good question. I don't, did that answer what you were going with? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's people that I'm saved because I walked in an aisle. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily live sinful lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say now. I so just to be frank, I mean, um, are you guys familiar with like what they sometimes call the free grace position or the easy believism position? That that's what I grew up in. Okay, I grew up in that. Uh, I was taught that. You know, I had pastors that taught that. I believed it. Uh, so. It's easy for me to see the, the subtle lies that are in that right now because the people that are in that movement, they think of themselves as like modern-day Martin Luthers. You know, we're standing up for salvation by faith alone. You guys believe in works. That's what they believe. And really, one of the big things that helped me overcome that was the teaching of the new birth, Right. Because all of these things that we do, these works, this perseverance, this keeping, this faith, everything, all of it, all of it is because of God, what He's done for us in our life graciously. So there is no boasting. There is no merit. There's nothing about our Christian lives that we can take credit for, right? We really did do it. It was us that did it. But as Paul says, it was not really I, but Christ, right? It was Christ in me, both to will and to do God's good pleasure, right? He gave me both the desire and the ability to carry this out. Before, I didn't have the desire, and I certainly didn't have the ability. All right? I'm I'm willing to flip the page and look at verse 6 if no other questions, all right? So let's look at verse 6. So in verses... 3 through 5, Peter uh, praises God and thanks Him for the new birth. And then he says in verse 6, at least this is the way it has it in the NASB, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So the, the question is, how does this connect to what he's just been saying? So, the, the key phrase there, I think, for the connection is obviously the beginning, where he says, in this, okay? Another way you could translate it would be because of this. In other words, because of all of this stuff that I've just been talking about, this whole package of the new birth, the new birth and all of the blessings, in that, in this salvation, you guys can rejoice, And that's something that you and I can rejoice in no matter what else is going on in our lives, right? I have no idea what's going on in all of your lives, right? We don't know each other that well, right? You don't know what's going on in my life. But this is something that I can confidently say to you, no matter what's going on in your life, if you're a believer, if you've been born again, you can rejoice in this. And you see how powerful that is for Peter's readers? He's talking to these Christians who are scattered all over Asia Minor. Most of them he doesn't personally know. They're starting to have a hard time for their faith in Christ, and they're starting to realize that it's going to get worse before it gets better. They see darker times on the horizon. So in that way, they're a little bit like us, right? They're not having outright official persecution at this point, but they're being ridiculed in the market. If they're a slave and they have an unbelieving master, work must be horrible. They're losing property, losing income in certain situations, cut off from family members. And they're starting to hear rumors from other places in the empire that sometimes Christians are being persecuted. And they do wonder if eventually they'll all just be outright persecuted. But in all of that situation, they can rejoice in this. So he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, okay? So A there, uh, this rejoicing is over the coming salvation that's been made possible by the new birth. It's the whole package with all those elements that we just talked about. Uh, B, that phrase, though now you have suffered in various trials... Uh, Peter does note here that their, their suffering is real. Uh, Peter never in the letter minimizes their suffering, as in like he pretends like it's not real or it doesn't exist. What he does is he always just puts their suffering side by side with their coming glory. See how that works? Uh, it's, 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 it's wise, it's, and it's biblical, obviously. Peter is doing it. He never tries to talk the person out of, oh, this suffering's just imaginary or it's not really that big of a deal. What he does to encourage the person who's suffering is he shows them how much greater will be the glory that's coming on the other side of it. All right. Uh, C, Peter grants them five significant elements of hope in their suffering. All right. So we've broken down, or Tim has, uh, five elements here. So the first... could, and this is something that you could point people to in this passage, is that suffering is purposeful, so it's not random. God actually is orchestrating all events. He's God after all, right? There's no speck of dust that's floating in the air right now around me that God did not plan its course, right? Every detail of history is planned by our God, and that includes... suffering, And so the purpose is given with the so that statement in verse 7. You see that? The so that gives the purpose for the trial. It's so that the tested genuineness of their faith might be found to praise, glory, and honor. So Peter provides a comparison between faith and gold. So they would uh, mine gold out of the ground, the ore would have a mixture of gold and other substances in it. As you know, gold melts very easily. And then after it's been turned into a liquid, it can easily be made solid again. So they would heat it through fire so that the pure gold would be refined out of the stuff that wasn't valuable so that what was left after the fire was more precious. All right, See how that lends itself to a an analogy with what God does to our faith. So the the analogy here makes four connections. One, trials are like purifying gold, for they reveal whether the faith is real. So again, we've kind of touched on this already, but this is what I was alluding to with Jesus' parable of the, the soils. Initially, all three of those plants, other than the one where Satan immediately grabs the seed away, But the final three, they all start growing, and it looks like genuine faith. But what's one of the things that happens? One of them is they get choked out with trials, right? The trials of this earth reveal that their faith is real. Number two, trials are like purifying gold, for the result is a pure form of faith, right? The faith is like a muscle. It's actually getting stronger as we use it. All right. I mean just think of it as like your hand and you're you're holding on to Christ, right? And the trials whatever they are are trying to pull Christ away from you. The trial is lying to you and telling you that there's a better way. That God doesn't know what's best. That this confidence that you have in Jesus is is foolish. It's it's you know, it's, it's backward. Maybe you're being told you're on the wrong side of history. Nobody believes that kind of stuff anymore. It's pulling. It's pulling. And it's getting hard because of the trial. But the longer you hang on and endure in the midst of the trial, your hand, which in my illustration is representing faith, is getting stronger, right? So as you exercise faith, you actually have more faith. Faith is something that actually can grow. You can trust God, but you can also increase in our trust. We all can. We can increase in our trust of God and daily taking Him at His word. So three trials are unlike purifying gold. So the first one are ways that they're like. The second two are ways that they're different. They're different in that the proven faith is more precious than gold. Okay. And second, trials are unlike purifying gold, for gold will perish while faith endures. So that's the interesting thing about verse seven is that he's got this phrase about fire. So they use fire to to test or to prove gold, to refine gold. But eventually even gold will pass away, right? Even gold, as valuable as it is, is, will last forever. But not genuine faith, right? If we've genuinely trusted God through trials, then we'll always trust God, right? Our faith, if anything, will only get greater, right? Because someday our faith will turn into sight. But our faith will last forever, and it will result in something. That's that's the second point here, that this suffering results in a reward. So the first point was that suffering is purposeful. The second point is that suffering results in a reward. So that he says there, and may be found to result, the end of verse 7, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even though there is some disagreement among scholars, I think the best answer is that this is not praise and glory and honor to God directly, but this is praise and honor and glory that God will give to us as believers. Again, that's a great comfort, right? Uh, One of the one of the trials i think that peter's readers face that we have in common with them is just ridicule right we're just looked down upon you guys are nuts you actually believe that nobody believes that right you guys are on the wrong side of history right you need to you, be, you need to be more open minded right you need to be more tolerant okay and then sometimes and i, I think this was increasingly so in peter's days those those value judgments by others started to have dollar amounts attached to them, all right? Because you had a a master, and you were his slave, right? And he thought what you were doing was foolish. Or you were in a trade guild, right? And to be part of your trade guild, you had to have some form of idolatry practiced. But now as a Christian, you couldn't do that. So then what if you got kicked out of the trades, right? So increasingly, they were despised and looked down on, right? Paul said of himself, right, that he's thought of as the scum of the earth. Is how he and the other apostles were viewed. But appearances are deceiving, right? No matter how we're viewed in this life, and we actually have to make sure, Peter's going to get to this in a couple more chapters, that we're being looked down on and scorned for doing what's right, and not just for being jerks, right? But assuming it's because we're doing what's right, what really has been going on behind the scenes will be revealed. When we stand before our Lord and Master, He will heap upon us glory and praise and honor. And of course, this has a a circular nature to it, right? Because it's God praising us, giving us glory and honor. And why do we get this praise, glory, and honor, right? Right? It's ultimately because of what He's done through us. As one writer says, He'll crown His graces in us. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? He will crown His graces in us. He will reward us for doing the things that He caused us to do so that then we can return glory and honor and praise back to Him because He's the one who ultimately has done it. Third, this suffering is divinely ordained, all right? See that little phrase there, if it is necessary, if it is necessary, all right? This language of necessity is used elsewhere of Jesus' suffering. Jesus certainly would say that about himself, right? His his suffering wasn't optional. It was something that had to take place. It was God's plan, and it was God's good plan, That's another... Good thing to, to think about, right? The, the problem of evil, evil is a big problem, and it's bigger than we can dive into tonight. Why does God allow evil to happen? And we don't know all the answers, but we know for sure that he has a good reason for it, right? He has a good reason for it. If he didn't have a good reason for it, it wouldn't happen. So it's necessary, and it's, it's good. And it's God himself who determines the necessity he never has to explain to us why it happens. Think of Job. You know, we, we got the peek behind the curtain, so to speak, if this was Wizard of Oz. Like we get the behind story. We know why it happened to Job. But Job never knows. right? As far as we know, the story ends, Job never gets to know about the conversation between God and Satan that happened in heaven. And God's not obligated to tell us why these things happen. We just can trust in the fact that they're divinely ordained and he has a good reason for it. Fourth, suffering leads us to a confirmation of our salvation. So I think here you could tie this into our doctrine of assurance, right? That when we go through trials and we see ourselves actually enduring through those trials and getting stronger in our faith, it actually gives us greater assurance that we belong to our, our master. Most of the ways that assurance works, I think, in the life of a Christian involve things that we are actually doing because we're actually seeing the work of the Spirit in us. The more, more confidence we have in finishing the race comes from actually running the race. The more we see ourselves running and actually following Jesus, the more confident we will have that we will actually have a salvation. The more confidence we can have that we'll have a salvation that endures. And finally, this suffering is temporary. Again, this is something that he's going to come back to later, but it's just for a little while. It doesn't feel like a little while when you're going through it, does it? It doesn't. But again, what he's doing is he's holding it up next to the glory, right? The glory that's coming will last forever. It will last for eternity so compared to that, then any trial that you're going to going through right now is just for a little while. Any, any questions there at that point? So let me just read verses 8 through 9 then. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So a good picture here of what genuine faith looks like in verse 8. We've not seen Him, but we love Him. We haven't seen Him, but we believe in Him. It doesn't matter what's happening around us then, we're rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory, and we're obtaining. So this might be a place then when he is talking about kind of a present being saved. To go back to that question about being saved, it might be here in verse 9, the obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right? Should I go on for a few more minutes? Or... Go on for a few more minutes? Okay, let's look at verse uh, 10 then. So in verses 10 through 12, the believer's privileged position. So verses 10 through 12 are a deep consideration of salvation and the beneficial place of believers in God's plan of redemption. And he goes into this section about the prophets. Are you familiar with this section? He says in verse 10, as to this salvation, this salvation that he's just been talking about that comes with the new birth, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel." to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Now, at first glance, it strikes you as kind of odd. How, he, he kind of makes an abrupt shift. Why did he go from praising God for our salvation and talking about trials, and now he's talking about prophets and prophecy? It seems a little odd. Well, I think his main point, if you wanted to boil it down to, is that one of the reasons why you can rejoice in the midst of trials is because of the unique situation that you and I find ourselves in. That we're actually living in the fulfillment of prophecy. That even though this looks like a dark world around us and terrible things truly are happening, we are actually living in the the final moments of world history. If this was a soccer match, we're in the, the bonus time, so to speak, what do they call that, the stoppage time? I'm not a soccer guy, is it stoppage time? Like the whole game has gone on and there's a, there, it should be over, but then there's this little extra time. And is it right that you don't really know like, how long that time's gonna last? But it's gonna end, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know, so I've, I probably shouldn't use sports analogies from sports <laughs> I don't actually play. But that's basically what he's saying, you are in the end times. Right, the salvation that was promised at the end end is going to appear at any moment. But the final pieces of that end game, so to speak, have already been put into place. Jesus has already been born. The King is already present. He's already lived on this life uh, righteously, earning for you merit that you never could have earned on your own. He's died for you sacrificially. He's risen. And he's ascended victoriously to the right hand of the Father. And from there, at any moment, he's going to return to gather his people and initiate his final campaign to reclaim this earth and to make that good place for us. The prophets desperately, as they wrote about that, they desperately wanted to know when that was going to happen and how all the pieces were going to fit together. So I think that little phrase there that they were... uh, Let's see where is it. Um, verse eleven, seeking to know what person or time. So as, as uh, Dr. Miller says here at the bottom of that page. So this is two a. In the ESV or the NASB, which I just read out of, it's what person or time. In the NIV, it's time and circumstance. Okay, it's a it's a strange little phrase. Basically, it's a it's a interrogative pronoun that's a lot of grammar it's a it's like a why and then it's a and it's a what time so a very literal wooden translation would have been kind of what and what time what and what time so you have to fill in the blanks with something in english is that what that that interrogative is it talking about what person or what time that's the big question and i think probably he's talking about time both of them are are two ways of saying the same thing. I think that the Old Testament prophets knew that there was a Messiah who was coming, who was going to accomplish all those things that I just described, but they had two big puzzles as they searched even their own writings. When will this all take place, right? Is it it tomorrow or is it thousands of years from now? And how do all the pieces fit together? It's really easy for us now to pick up the gospel or the the book of isaiah for example and we can say okay this happened at jesus's first coming this happened at jesus's second coming and we can put everything into neat little boxes right but the prophet couldn't do that right he was at a disadvantage because he he didn't have as much revelation as we did so i think there's a there's a temporal element it's when when will this all happen but then it's also temporal inside that like inside of all of that happening how do all those pieces fit together in a certain order right they desperately that says here three times using three different words they diligently looked at their own writings so that what they said was inspired by the holy spirit it was not them just making it up and they understood what they said right? it wasn't meaningless to them but they couldn't possibly see all of the significance or the implications of it. And They wanted to know when it was going to happen. And Peter's big point in this section is that now you know, I know, and we're living inside of it. And that is actually in and of itself something to rejoice in. The Old Testament era just scattered a few people here and there, born again, with that changed heart that allowed them to have faith in God. But now, with the coming of Christ, a huge community from every tribe, nation, and and tongue, it says, right? Not just Jewish people and a few scattered people, but this huge international body of people that are being born again and built into a temple for Christ. And this is the the final stage, so to speak, of of this end time thing that's going to take place that the prophets desperately wanted to know about, all right? I think that's where I'm supposed to close, so I'll I'll stop there. If you have any questions, save them for Tim next week. And uh, I I appreciate your attention. All right, God bless.